0: Congress authorized the creation of the Office of the National Cyber Director back in 2021, and the White House issued the National Cybersecurity Strategy earlier this year. So how's it doing implementing said strategy? Well, the Government Accountability Office looked to answer that very question with a snapshot of where things stand. To learn more, I spoke to Marisol Cruz-Kane, Director of the Information Technology and Cybersecurity Team at GAO.
1: Well, back in September 2020, we first took a look at the previous administration's national cyber strategy and the implementation plan that came along with it. And we noticed some missing elements there. And when the new administration issued their strategy in 2023, we thought it was important that we looked at it, took a look at it the same way we took a look at the previous administration's strategy to look for the critical elements that GAO feel should be in a national strategy. So we were able to do that with the strategy itself since the implementation plan hasn't come out yet. And we wanted to just give our initial thoughts on what that strategy contained.
0: And those initial thoughts, please. (laughs) Absolutely. So we have six
1: critical elements of what we think a national strategy should have in it. And the strategy for the current administration identified its purpose, what the scope of it was, and the methodology that they used to come up with the strategy. It also outlined very clearly what the problem was. Cybersecurity has a very clear problem and what risks were involved. And then lastly, it really laid out how it integrated with other key cybersecurity documents like the executive order on cybersecurity and different OMB guidances that deal with cyber and how those were helping with the implementation of the strategy. But what we didn't find were specific milestones with dates that these all of the items that it had in it were supposed to be done by or performance measures. How are we going to measure how any of this was successful in the strategy? Another thing that we were looking for that we didn't find was a total cost for the efforts contained in the strategy. And then also, initially when we looked at it, we didn't find prioritizing how agencies were supposed to set their investments to achieve the goals in the strategy. And then lastly, specific roles and responsibilities. There were some areas that we found didn't have a specific agency assigned to it. And kind of left it very vague who is going to be in charge of implementing those specific goals.
0: Cybersecurity is a pretty malleable thing. and, And a lot of these goals were kind of abstract, you know, protecting cyber critical infrastructure. You know, how do you how do they quantify when a goal is reached when it comes to cybersecurity?
1: I think that's one of the things we were saying that was missing. We didn't see any real performance measures there to say, okay, we've got our five pillars. You mentioned one being the critical infrastructure. They laid out five specific goals that they had within that larger objective. But what it is missing is how are we going to measure them? Who is going to measure them? And what are the specific tiny little steps that are going to be taken to achieve those overall
0: goals? So what you're all basically looking for is more of a comprehensive plan rather than saying good things and hoping that they all kind of fall into place.
1: Absolutely. There is no way that we can implement such a broad and comprehensive plan without specifics in there, specific steps they want the agencies to take, specific people who are going to oversee those steps. How are the agencies going to be responsible for allocating resources to those steps? Where are they going to get the money? Uh, What are they expected to do? How long are they expected to do it in? So, what OMCD has told us is they're going to issue an implementation plan similar to the previous administration, and the latest date that they gave us for its release is mid-July. So we are kind of waiting to see if that's going to happen, but we're hoping that the implementation plan outlines these really specific nuances that we need to understand exactly how these larger, like you said, really broad goals are going to be implemented, who's going to help with that, and how the agencies are expected to allocate their resources and get those things
0: done. Yeah, this is no small task getting all of that together. Where did the administration say that they were kind of starting as a base? Is it just getting that implementation plan ready or are they starting from critical infrastructure or starting from, uh, you know, finding the bad actors?
1: They told us that it's starting with the implementation plan. Um, we know that they're working with several key federal agencies to develop that implementation plan. A lot of the sector risk management agencies have been involved with ONCD and OMB in creating that implementation plan. And we're imagining it's going to cover all of the five pillars. I don't think they're going to start one and go one by one, um, but that's remained to be seen. Um, we're waiting for that plan to come out so that we can take a look at it and see exactly how they've delineated it, how they're going to attack that. But they did take an important step by issuing a memo last month that came out on June 28th that did let the agencies know for fiscal year 25, that they should prioritize the five pillars in the strategy and that they were to submit to ONB in their fiscal year budget how they were going to do that. And then they were going to work with OMB and ONCD to give the agencies feedback on their priorities, see if they're identifying any gaps, how can they help them close their gaps. So they're really starting to try to get their guidance to align a little bit better with the strategy. And I think that will be even easier once the implementation plan comes out, if it does contain some of these specific details that GAO is looking for.
0: And one of the other issues at hand is speaking of the ONCD, there is currently no director of it right now. What does the leadership of the office look like at the current moment, and you know who's running day to day operations?
1: Well, the previous cyber director resigned in June 2021, so since then we have the acting director, Kemba Walden, and she has been taking care of all of the day to day. So. We have the plan going out under her. The implementation plan has been created under her. And as we mentioned in our snapshot, we really think it's time for a permanent cyber director to be appointed. It is very important that there is sustained leadership there. We've noted in several reports that leaders, in order to be effective, need to be in a position from three to five years. And in order to implement a major change initiative, which we see the strategy being, A leader needs to be in place from five to seven years. So we're hoping that we get a permanent director and they can be in for a longer period of time.
0: Did the folks you all talked to at the office talk about how challenging it was to implement such long-term goals without having a permanent leader in place to direct the ship?
1: Unfortunately, they did not. (laughs) We weren't really able to get too much information in that area, but I do know that it's been public that's People on the Hill have been requesting that we get a permanent cyber director, and we are definitely in line with that and hope that that will help in the long run to have a consistent one leader that will be able to take this implementation strategy from its beginning to effectively implementing it.
0: Yeah. And and what does a successful implementation plan look like? Is it just having a secure atmosphere for X amount of years or just hoping that there are no major events that come across any agency in the near future?
1: I think it looks like being proactive, finding these new methods like zero trust and Different methods we've been using to not only react to things that have happened, but to detect things before they happen in the future. You really can't secure something by continuously just patching things that you found. We really need to get into, you know, with CISA, CISA's is putting out their national security advisories and security advisories letting agencies know we've had these problems take a look at your system evaluate where your system is so this doesn't happen to you so we've got to get into this groove of looking forward what could happen this one thing how does it relate to your system how can you be proactive in protecting your systems from other incidents taking place so it really looks like Securing what we have now, but also continuously looking at your processes to make sure you're looking into the future and you're trying to protect from things that have not happened to you yet, but could. And also taking a look at our emerging technologies and how those fit into your agencies, but also how can we start using them securely so that we don't start using them and then something happens, and then we worry about security. So it's really taking a proactive stance.
0: Marisol cruz Kane is the Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. You can find this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity
2: and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure to be
2: you first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, People will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people. Because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair, with dignity and respect on the job, and I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting
2: those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand when I say I cannot it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good strong staff Uh, and I tell anybody that but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have, we rely on them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events. Widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited. Okay. To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor. Uh, running, if you will, and it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there, ready to go, and that call to action goes out, then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can
2: explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and i, I got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in, uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people, right? Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It is it, it's, it's needed. Uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because
2: you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks different energy it's it's always straightforward yes. honest here's the truth yes and it, it's it's easy yes right? yes it's a lot easier than having multiple personas absolutely you, yeah absolutely what's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career
3: you know i don't know you asked for one but i'm i'm going to have to elaborate on two yeah, if that's okay yeah. number one i would explain the urgency of integrity, a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer. Right. Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today?
3: It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when, and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the deep south. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith